Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And Happy New Year to everybody. We are starting this new year off with uh, another novel, and it is a Poirot. And what Poirot might that be, Kemper? <sighs> Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Very exciting. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the publication history? So this was first serialized from October to December of 1951 in the Chicago Tribune, interestingly, uh, before being published in book form first again in the U.S. by Dodd Mead, of course, in February of 1952, and then by Collins Crime Club, but of course, in the U.K. in March 1952. And I actually have a fun tidbit about the U.K. serialization of this, which was in Woman's Journal. And apparently the title was too unappetizing for them, and they wanted to change it. Agatha had some choice words about this, which she wrote to her agent, Edmund Cork, saying, I really think WJ shouldn't take murder stories if they funk labeling them as such. So she was not happy about that. (laughs) I also just want to note the dedication, which we don't often talk about. It's worth noting that the book is dedicated to Peter Saunders, who was a theatrical producer. I believe we mentioned him glancingly on our Patreon episode for Black Coffee, because we were talking Mm -hmm. about Agatha Christie on stage. He had produced a couple of Agatha Christie plays starting in the late 40s, the first being The Murder at the Vicarage. And of course, this very year that the book was published in 1952, he began producing, oh yes, The Mousetrap, which uh, you can still watch to this day in uh, London. So he did pretty well for uh, Dame Agatha. Right. I guess we should get on with our victim, which, uh, as the title of the book might suggest, is Mrs. McGinty. (laughs) (laughs) She's an older widowed charwoman living in the village of Broadhenny, and she was murdered via some kind of chop to the back of the head in her cottage, where she was also robbed of her meager savings, seemingly by her tenant, James Bentley. Right. Well, let's get started with our list of suspects. We will have a a second victim as well, but let's not spoil things right up front. We will certainly get there. And we have a prime suspect here, of course, which would be James Bentley. Uh, He has been tried, convicted, and sentenced to hang for the murder of Mrs. McGinty. He will be executed in a few short months unless Monsieur Poirot figures out that he did not, in fact, do it, which is not even something that Poirot is certain about at the beginning of the novel. But given that we have, you know, a 270-ish page novel to get through, probably is going to be a little bit more complicated than that. And we should talk about some other characters, which would be, surprise, surprise, pretty much everyone in the book in the village of Broadhenny. Right. So we have uh, Maureen Summerhays, who's a sort of charmingly absent-minded 30-ish lady of the house. The house is called Long Meadows. It's the village, quote unquote, guest house, although we'll use that lightly. <laughs> and uh, she's newly back from India with her husband, Major Summer Hayes, and his family dates back hundreds of years um, at Long Meadows. And he and his wife seem to be, in addition to their quote unquote guest house, trying to start up some kind of organic garden enterprise thing. Let's just say that they don't seem to be so successful at either. Yeah, the hijinks with the Summer Hayes is one of the best things in the book. For sure. Um, Yeah, Long Meadows as a failed guest house is a delight. Let us not forget that they're also trying to breed hounds. (laughs) Yes, they're doing a lot of different things. 
those summer hazes. Well, next up, we have Guy Carpenter. He's decided to run for MP of Kilchester, the county where we find Broad Hinney. And uh, he is very much about appearances, as is his wife, Eve Carpenter. She is a 30-something woman. She was formerly Mrs. Selkirk, who had been living as a war widow within the village of Broad Hinney before Guy Carpenter snapped her up. And she is very made up and nearsighted and both vain and snobby. And then we have Laura Upward, who is an arthritic village lady who uses a wheelchair, and she lives with her beloved son, Robin Upward, who is a very promising, talented, 30-something playwright who is utterly devoted to his quote-unquote madre, while also remaining entirely vain, self-absorbed, and preening about his craft. As you can see, we're sort of getting groupings of people here who all live together. So our next grouping is a threesome. We have Mr. Roger Weatherby, who is a very unpleasant older man who lives with his wife, Mrs. Edith Weatherby, a once pretty invalid who needs to be waited on hand and foot by her beleaguered daughter, Deidre Henderson, so named because she is Edith's daughter from her first marriage. So Mr. Roger Weatherby is her stepfather. And she is a plain, seemingly stunted 30-something woman. She's relentlessly bullied by her horror show of a mother and stepfather. Then we have Dr. Rundell, the seemingly affable village doctor, along with his wife, Sheila, who is, you know, icy thin Again, 30-something-year-old woman in the village. There is a reason we're mentioning people's ages. She's very nervous. And then finally, we have Mrs. Sweeteman, who is really not a suspect. Spoiler, she didn't do it. But we'll just lump her in here as she's the village postmistress. And she appears a lot because she seems to know dirt on everyone in the village. So there's lots of conversations happening in and around Mrs. Sweeteman. All right, Catherine, let's get into the world as it appears to be. Our beloved Hercule Poirot is not really living his best life. He can only eat thrice a day because, you know, he doesn't take 11 C's or tea because that would really dilute the pleasures of his main meals. (laughs) And he doesn't have any cases. And Hastings, his dear beloved Hastings, isn't in England. He reminisces about, like, how excited Hastings would get when he couldn't solve something and then Poirot would do it. He's pining away for Sacher Hastings. He manages to call him a stooge, though, while he's doing said pining. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. So, in other words, Poirot's bored out of his mind. So after walking home from the culinary delights of Le Vieille Grand-Mère in Soho, he's pleasantly surprised to find a visitor. Superintendent Spence, last seen by us and by Poirot in Taken at the Flood. And he's soon to retire, but he has some last cases. And one that just wrapped up was the McGinty murder case. And it is gnawing on Spence. Because while her tenant, James Bentley, was convicted, and while Spence knows that he did everything right, the police did everything right, in protocol. They talked to everybody. They did the investigation properly. He just has this terrible feeling that James Bentley was innocent. Right. And it's worth noting, by the way, that the scene in which Spence and Poirot meet again plays as though Spence hasn't seen Poirot for decades. 
Right. Like it's very like, oh, my old friend. And it's curious because it's only been four years since Taken at the Flood, which is very squarely set in post-war England. And this too is set in post-war England. So it's not even as if within the world of the novels, more time could have gone by really. But apparently a four-year gap for Poirot novels actually was kind of big since, you know, again, Christie wrote so many Poirots, especially all those 30s Poirots in a row. And even in the 40s, she managed to sprinkle them in. So on the cover of the book, apparently it had this tag on it saying, Poirot is back. So in the reader's minds, the contemporary reader's mind, it did feel like a long time. So perhaps that's why we get this flavor in that scene, which just, it reads curiously. I think it certainly did to me as a reader in modern day, going through Christie's books a lot more quickly than when they were actually being published. Although I'm not, I don't want to add a spoiler, but there's a really critical time mistake in this book. We can talk about it later, but I don't know that the dates all exactly line up here. And I also, by the way, really appreciated that part of Poirot's motivation isn't even the fact that Bentley may be unfairly sentenced for crime. He's worried that Superintendent Spence isn't going to be able to enjoy his retirement. Right. Where he's going to grow vegetables in the countryside. Yeah. So it's the whole sort of like there can't be any shadow over the lives of the innocent motif, which is like very, very on brand for Poirot. I just think it's really funny. It's like, and also maybe an innocent man is going to be executed. I mean, they do mention that too. It's not like that goes unobserved, but I just thought that was funny. So here is the case against James Bentley. Mrs. McGinty was found the morning after her death when she didn't come to the door for the baker, and it was discovered that her house had been rifled through and her money stolen from under her floorboards. Seemingly everyone in town knew that she kept her money under those floorboards. Not very safe. (laughs) No, not very safe. She was found face down in her parlor, chopped in the back of her head. And I should mention that technically... This title is one of Christie's nursery rhyme titles right. because there's an obscure British children's rhyme that begins Mrs. McGinty's Dead. And it is referenced several times in the novel. We don't need to read it out here. Fortunately, Christie doesn't harp on it very much. She's not shoehorning any of the other verses into it. It's mostly treated as a weird coincidence. Yes, exactly. Since it is a little odd that the woman's name would happen to be Mrs. McGinty. But again, Christie just loved doing those nursery rhyme titles. So she is found face down in her parlor chopped in the back of the head with an unidentified weapon because there's no weapon on the scene. And her tenant, James Bentley, had been in arrears on rent. He had no job possibilities. And he seems to have just completely panicked in the aftermath of her death. He has no alibi for the night that she was killed. He's highly anxious. He can't successfully mount a defense, especially because the money that had been stolen is found stashed outside the house where Bentley would have had quick access to it. So the police and the jury clearly believe that he's guilty, he had motive, he had opportunity. Spence is convinced partially that he didn't do it because he just doesn't seem like a murderer to him. Um, He's not arrogant. He's really just too much of a wet blanket, honestly, to be someone who Spence feels like could have pulled this off and had the gumption to do it. And that's really not going to change about James Bentley in this book. He never gets more interesting than he's first presented. So Poirot agrees to go to Broadhinney and investigate. And when he goes there, the only place he can stay is Longmeadows. 
Poirot, it's probably the last place he should stay. It's a mess. The summer haze, because they came from India where they had tons of servants, they don't know how to cook or clean or keep a house. And also the house is hundreds of years old, so it's already kind of falling apart. None of this really works for Poirot. They did have a good domestic, and that would, of course, be Mrs. McGinty. Mrs. McGinty, right. And it's really, I just want to pull out the quote, I actually laughed aloud. I laughed aloud a lot of the things that Mrs. Summerhays said, especially knowing that Poirot was listening to them in horror. Domestics, Mrs. Summerhays gave a squeal. What a hope. Can't even get hold of a daily. A really good one was murdered. Just my luck. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, the thing is, both of the Summerhays seem to be, quote unquote, very nice people. And this is repeated as a sentiment several times to Poirot. Everyone in Broadhinny is a very nice person. Immediately suspect. And he gets this also from Mrs. Sweetman when he goes to the post office and he gets really the first bit of new information from her because she tells him that she last saw Mrs. McGindy on November 19th, three days before the murder on November 22nd. And she remembers that because Mrs. McGinty bought ink from her. And it's noteworthy because Mrs. McGinty didn't send letters or write. So she didn't come in to buy ink, which like might be a normal thing for Poirot, as an example. Not so for Mrs. McGinty. Right, since Mrs. McGinty is squarely a member of the working class, which it is unusual that Poirot is investigating the murder of a member of the working class. It does happen occasionally, and this is one of those times. So. Right. So Poirot goes to visit Mrs. McGinty's niece, Bessie, who inherited what little her aunt had left. And Bessie lets Poirot go through the remainder of her aunt's belongings. Poirot finds many of her things wrapped in newspaper, namely the Sunday Comet, out of which a front page has been cut from the November 19th edition. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in some dusty archives, it is definitely noted that they're dusty because, of course, that would annoy Poirot. He finds that November 19th newspaper, and he finds the front page story that was cut out of it. It's a tabloid story entitled, quote, Women Victims of Bygone Tragedies, Where Are These Women Now? With photographs of the following four women, quote, Eva Kane, the other woman in the famous Craig case, Janice Cortland, the tragic wife whose husband was a fiend in human form. Little Lily Gamble, tragic child product of our overcrowded age. And Vera Blake, unsuspecting wife of a killer. Oh boy. Let's take them one at a time, and we would be remiss if we did not also point out their real-world analogs. So, Eva Kane was a nursery governess in the home of Alfred Craig, and she had an affair with Alfred. And Alfred's wife is supposed to have gone off to a resort in the French Riviera and died, except that she really didn't because she was found chopped into pieces and buried in the cellar at the family home. Oh, dear. Yeah. And Alfred Craig was hanged, and Eva Kane, who was pregnant, at the time, went off to relatives in the New World for a better life with her daughter. This is what the newspaper tells us. And this would be a very obvious reference for contemporary readers, I think, especially to the Dr. Crippen case. And Eva Kane specifically is a fictional version of Ethel Lenevre, whose real life name is much better. (laughs) So she was mistress to the infamous wife murderer, Dr. Holly Harvey Crippen, even though now apparently some people think that maybe Dr. Crippen didn't actually do it. But the big intrigue around that story was 
was how guilty or not was Ethel Lenev? How much did this other woman know? And it was a case that really consumed the populace at the time. So then we have Janice Cortland, who was tortured for years by her abusive husband until a young paramour witnessed her treatment and killed her husband. And because, you know, there was justifiable cause, he was only sentenced to manslaughter and Janice fled abroad to recover. Right. And we have talked about the real world analog to this case on this podcast fairly recently. That, of course, would be Edith Thompson, who was referenced oh so many times in Crooked House uh, Mm -hmm. since Magda Leonides wanted to play the role of Edith Thompson in a theatrical version of her life. Very similarly, I mean, the intrigue was how much did Edith Thompson know? Like, how much did she instigate the murder of her husband by her lover? I think that we can see that the trend here is quote-unquote women victims of bygone tragedies is tabloid speak for murderesses, except we can't legally say that. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So that's Janice Cortland. And then up next, we have Lily Gamble, who was a hideously ugly buck-toothed Coke bottle glasses wearing 12-year-old orphan. Just Just to be clear, Kemper is not being unusually mean about a child. It is repeatedly talked about in this book how ugly she was. No, it's true. Um, yeah, so she uh, took an axe to her aunt's head because she was mad at her and sent subsequently to a, quote, approved school, end quote. We later find out that the school was in Ireland and not heard from since. And, you know, there are a ton of child murderers, obviously, through the years. Constance Kent has been referenced in Christie before and I believe even gets a shout out in this book. It did make me think of, though, another real world case, which we also have referenced before, and that would be Juliet Hulm and Pauline Parker, the two teenage girls who conspired to murder Parker's mother so that they right. would be separated. And that, of course, happened in New Zealand. And that was Peter Jackson's first movie, Heavenly, Heavenly Creatures. Creatures. And yeah. Kate Winslet played Juliet Hulm and Melanie Linsky played Pauline Parker. Both girls were separated and sent away, quote, at her majesty's discretion because they were too young to go to prison. And Juliet then had and still continues to have a career as a writer of murder mysteries under the pseudonym Anne Perry. That is Lily Gamble. And who was our last murderer? Uh, Vera Blake, who is a woman who had just terrible, terrible taste in criminal paramours. She also ended up with two children and they ended up as little shoplifters until finally she marries a nice man who took her away to, quote unquote, the Dominions. I'm sure there are real world analogs to that one as well, but none sprang to mind. Right. It's a pretty vague setup. Well, and and, and thankfully Vera Blake will not matter to this story. No, she will not. So Poirot puts all of this information together with the suddenly purchased bottle of ink and realizes that it's very possible that Mrs. McGinty read this article, recognized one of the photos attached to the article of each of these four women, and realized that where those women are now, at least for one of them, was quite possibly Broadhinny. And that she wrote to the person she suspected would have been very easy for her to see the original or a duplicate of one of these photos in someone's house. And she had access to everyone's house who we've mentioned, the Weatherby's, the Carpenters, um, the Upwards family and the Summerhays family. So I will note, by the way, that I found the intrigue surrounding the death of Mrs. McGinty in the earlier part of the investigation to be a really, really fantastic hook and way into mm-hmm. a Poirot novel. I got a little disappointed pointed when we find out that this is where we're going. The wind was taken out of my sails a tiny bit as a reader. I think that, you know, if you want to say that now, I think that we can also say that it's actually, and you know this from this point on, it's a very straightforward mystery. 
of what's going to yeah. happen here. Like incredibly yes. straightforward. I mean, you understand what you're looking for. And that essentially that means that most of the plot pieces are red herrings. Right. Right. They're Mr. X. Yeah. No, it just, it simplifies matters considerably. You know, Christy doesn't have any kind of like pull the carpet out from under your feet moment in her denouement where you're like, oh, no, no, no. This is actually much more complicated than what you were thinking. I mean, it, it is as simple as it seems to be when we're introduced to these four would be murderesses. I do like the tabloid call outs in this. I think it's yeah. funny. Oh, it's great. And it continues to be great, great fun. It's not a sort of thing where I'm like, oh, and then it was hard to get through and I didn't enjoy it. I did. I just, this is why it, this isn't a superlative Christie, but it's a really, really enjoyable Christie. Yeah. To get back to the plot, Poro takes this new tabloid knowledge to Spence and they swiftly decide that Eva Kane, who changed her name to Evelyn Hope, um, would now be in her early 60s and Lily Gamble would be in her early 30s, as would Eva Kane's daughter, whereas Janice Cortland and Vera Blake would be the wrong ages for any of the women in the village. So Mrs. Weatherby and Mrs. Upward are sort of the same age as Eva Kane and Deirdre, Eve, Sheila, and although she's not really a suspect, Maureen would match Lily Gamble or Eva Kane's daughter's age. This is actually where there is a really egregious mistake in the book. Eva Kane is supposed to have been like 19 when she gets pregnant and convinces Craig to murder his wife. And then somehow she's supposed to be in her early 60s now, whereas her daughter would be in her early 30s. It's off by 10 years. Yeah. It's like an odd mistake, especially when you're basing it on the ages of the women in the village, please correct me if I'm wrong. Why not either make her 29 or right. say that she would have to be in her early 50s and then make these characters in their early 50s instead of early 60s? Yeah. Yeah. No, fair That's enough. odd. Fair enough. Yeah. So we're only focusing on Eva Kane, Eva Kane's potential daughter, and Lily Gamble. In the interim, Poirot has also met with Maud Williams, who's a former co-worker of James Bentley, and who actually seems to have liked him quite a bit, despite Bentley's own insistence that he had no friends. And she agrees to help Poirot out. So Poirot recruits Maud to pose as a maid to spy on the Weatherbees. There's this sugar hammer or sugar cutter instrument, which I honestly didn't even really know what it looked like until I watched the Suchet adaptation. Yeah. And it, you know, it looks like a sharp little axe almost, right. like with which I suppose you cut blocks of sugar. The Summerhays have this implement, and they bought it at a sale from the Weatherbees. So it seems as though potentially the Weatherbees were in possession of this would-be weapon at the time of the murder. It's confusing based on whether or not it was the autumn or the Christmas bring-and-buy sale. Right. Like, it was either in the Weatherbees' possession at the time of the murder or the Summerhays' possession, but Poirot's already living with the Summerhays', so he's got that spying covered. Right. So now he has Maud in the Weatherbee home. Then something very unusual happens. Someone tries to kill our dear Hercule Poirot. Who would do that? <laughs> I gasped when I read this. Poirot is pushed in the small of the back on a crowded train platform. He nearly goes onto the tracks. He would have had not an army officer grabbed him. Uh, and he would have been killed. And he, of course, has no idea who did it. And my heart was a fluttering. But our Poirot, you know, is a finicky man, but he's also a brave man. So he just kind of dusts himself off and moves on. He does. And so we should also cover some other fun facts we find out during this period. And I mean, go over them pretty quickly. We find out that Sheila 
Mandel thinks that Poirot is there for an ulterior purpose, i.e. not to investigate the McGinty murder. And she hints strongly that she's been receiving anonymous letters. We have the Weatherbees who seem to be lying about something or everything, including what seems to be domestic abuse towards Deirdre. We have Eve Carpenter, who is also panicked and rude when Poirot even tries to talk to her. And we have the very delightful newspaper reporter who wrote the tabloid story confirm that, um, A, she pretty much just made up the story because tabloid <laughs> readers don't care about facts. As long as the broad strokes were correct, she felt totally okay publishing it. But excitingly, Kemper, we have not mentioned another character who shows up about halfway through this book. <laughs> Ariadne Oliver. Is yes. Broad Henny. She's back. She's back and she announces herself by throwing a core of an apple out the window of a moving car and hitting Poirot a smack in the face. So in keeping everything about Ariadne Oliver in this book is in keeping oh, with the, the first time we saw her so long ago in yeah. Cards on the Table. She is back and she is not going anywhere, folks, because it's a little sad, but in a way, the appearance of Ariadne Oliver in this novel is a bit of a harbinger that we are now in late Poirot period. And we talked about this once before. I think that we have that early Poirot period where Hastings is narrating the novels and we obviously have their relationship and the jocularity of that. And then we have the middle period, which can sometimes get a little flat and dour in some books. Not necessarily. There are many of the third person Poirots that do not feature Ariadne Oliver or Hastings that are lovely and wonderful, such as Five Little Pigs. But Ariadne Oliver really is a breath of fresh air, I think, in these later Poirot's, you know, she's so light and Christy has so much fun with her. And I think she's really needed in this novel, which is otherwise, I mean, this novel has the thing that I love best in Christy, which is super, super dark and super, super light elements just all swirled together. And Christy totally pulls it off because we have all the comedic hijinks of Poirot as a guest in Long Meadows. And then we have all of this with Ariadne Oliver. But then at the same time, it's a really kind of depressing murder of a charwoman right. hit over the head with an axe. And we haven't even gotten to the second murder yet and lots of not fun stuff going on. So, yeah, I couldn't have been more delighted that we're reintroduced to Ariadne Oliver. Yeah. And she's staying with the upwards because she's collaborating with playwright Robin on an adaptation of one of her novels with her Finn, you know, her famous detective. We will get a lovely, funny passage late in the book about her complaining about why she ever picked a Finn when she knows nothing about Finland. And, you know, now she's stuck with him for the rest of her life. You know, I don't know if that's a commentary on anything. If I met that bony, gangling, vegetable-eating Finn in real life, I'd do a better murder than any I've ever invented. <laughs> There are so many quotes, actually, and also just about the nature of adaptation, because she's so frustrated with what right. Robin Upward wants to do with her novel. And hmm, I wonder if Christie was uh, taken from life there, uh, <laughs> any know. of her feelings as a novelist. That's why she's in Broadhenny is because she's been having this difficult collaboration. This is what she says about the nature of adaptation. But you've no idea the agony of having your characters taken and made to say things that they never would have said and do things that they never would have done. And if you protest, all they say is that it's good theater, in quotes. That's all Robin Upward thinks of. Everyone says he's very clever. If he's so clever, I don't see why he doesn't write a play of his own and leave my poor unfortunate Finn alone. How many times have fans of Christie said something a little similar? It's actually kind of gratifying to see that in print. I know. I have to say. 
Although my one my one other aside that she makes is that she's in an argument with Robin about a romantic interest for her Finn. And she's like, but he's in his 60s. And Robin's like, well, no, that won't do at all. And she's like, I wrote him too old to begin with. Yeah, totally. So after welcome drinks for Ariadne and Poirot, the whole gang is over at the Upward's house, Laburnum's, and they're updating Mrs. Upward on all the goings on because, again, she's not super mobile. And Poirot pulls out this deck of photos that he has of these tragic women, the ones from the newspaper. And the group looks at them, and based on her reaction, Poirot can tell that Mrs. Upward recognizes someone. And when he asks, who do you recognize? She points to the photograph of... Lily Gamble. And the party disperses, but Poirot waits until Mrs. Upward is alone, and he goes back and asks her, you know, what is it that you know? And he warns her that it would be better to tell him now rather than keeping this to herself, but uh, she insists she needs to think about it. Hmm, I'm a little concerned. Yeah, as is Poirot, for good reason. Anyway, later on, Mrs. Oliver and Robin, they've been in these arguments about the adaptation, so they decide to, like, paper it over by talking about casting. So they go to the theater to judge an actor that um, Robin is interested in for the production. And when they return to Laburnum's, Mrs. Oliver walks in first and finds Mrs. Upward strangled in the living room by her own silk scarf around her neck. There's a smell of expensive perfume in the air and a coffee cup with lipstick on the rim. Uh, We also find out that she had called prior to dinner and left messages for each of Deirdre, Eve, and Sheila to come visit her around 9 p.m. Since she'd be lonely, her beloved son would be at the theater. And only Deirdre came, and she came before 9 o'clock, but the house was dark, so she left. The coroner also determines that Mrs. Upward had died before 9 o'clock. On top of all this, at the post office, Mrs. Sweetaman forces um, Edna, um, who's sort of like the village dum-dum, to tell... She's like her assistant. Yeah, she is. Right. Mm -hmm, To tell Major Summer Hayes what she saw the night of the murder, namely that someone in the 8 o'clock hour walked into the house and that someone was a blonde woman. Additionally, Maud accidentally blurts out to Poirot that Michael was right and Eva Kane slash Evelyn Hope had not died in Australia but must have been Mrs. Upward. Unfortunately, neither Evelyn Hope nor Australia were in that Comet story because again, remember, we found out through Spence that Eva Kane had changed her name to Evelyn Hope and gone to Australia. The Michael, who she's referring to here when she says that Michael was right about this information, we will eventually find out is one of the young actors at the theater that Mrs. Oliver and Robin Upward had been attending on the night of Mrs. Upward's murder. And if that sounds a little random and confusing right now, that's fine. But don't worry, that loose end will be tied in a neat little bow by the time we get to a resolution. But first, we need to bridge over to the the world as it actually is by way of some clues. All right. So that was a lot of plot, it seems. But as we both already mentioned, everything here comes down to one question. So who in the village is one of those tragic women, namely either Lily Gamble or Eva Kane? Because you find that person, you have probably found the murderer. So we don't have that many clues. Clue number one, don't just trust one sense. Or in this case, more specifically, don't trust appearances. Because it's noted that all of the photographs are more than 20 years old and that women in particular can change how they look based on dress and hair and makeup. And yet, we spend the vast majority of this book 
speculating over the appearances of the women in the village of Broadhinny. We get pages and pages of descriptions of what the women of Broadhinny look like. And so there's a deduction here, which is if we're being explicitly told not to trust appearances or that it's very hard to trust appearances, why exactly are we spending so much time on appearances? Could it be that appearances are a bit of a red herring? Clue number two, which is such a classic at this point, the too many clues clue. And we see it here twice, once in the ransacking of Mrs. McGinty's house and the seemingly easy setup of James Bentley. And we're kind of primed as readers at this point to not trust that. And we would be right in this case, because again, this book kind of hinges on the fact that James Bentley isn't, in fact, the murderer. But then secondly, in the murder of our second victim, Mrs. Upward, where we have this cup that has lipstick on the rim, and yet lipstick is easily wiped off. And we have strong perfume lingering long after the murder. The too many clues clue is almost always about the murder or crime being staged. So we may want to discount whatever it is that the clues seem to be telling us, i.e. that the first murder was in the course of a robbery and that the second murder was all about a female murderess. And we should think about why someone would want to cause those two misdirects. I mean, the first misdirect is obvious because they're trying to pin it on James Bentley. But in the second case, why does someone seem to be so hell-bent on convincing uh, Spence, Poirot, and the reader that it's got to be one of these women? Clue number three, names. Another Christie favorite. We've seen it in such favorites of ours as Peril at Endhouse. And it's a don't make assumptions about people's names. People go by nicknames. People are called the same name. There are all sorts of variants on name spellings. Poirot even actually discusses this with Superintendent Spence, that Eva is no longer a popular name, but Eve is. And also that Eva Kane was probably originally Evelyn, and that also she likely named her daughter Evelyn Hope. And let's think of what the obvious deduction here is. And I, I, I think it would be that, you know, Evelyn... Bois would like to have a word because what is Evelyn but a unisex name? Right. And I mean, we've been a little sneaky referring to the name as Evelyn yeah. throughout our <laughs> right. plot summary. But Evelyn, of course, is also Evelyn, spelled the same way. And when it's pronounced that way, it is often a man, right. not a woman. Very Mothers can name their sons after themselves, too, you know. All right. Clue number four. <laughs> Actors. Oh, no. Oh, I mean, we can't not point this out. That's true. You, of course, can never, ever trust people in the theater in an Agatha Christie novel, even if they aren't quite actors per se. And, you know, this is a little, perhaps a little bit of a cheat, but... It's not, not really, really. because not really. <laughs> yeah, theater people are adept at deception. Sleight of hand, costume changes, lighting, timing. Our deduction here is just to think about, hmm, who in this story is heavily involved in the theater? Yeah. We've only got one playwright here, folks. Of course, that would be Robin Upward. All right, Catherine, take us into our resolution here. Robin Upward is Evelyn Hope, son of Eva Kane, <gasps> not daughter. He came from Australia to England years ago after the death of his mother and was, quote unquote, adopted by Mrs. Upward and took her name. She lost her own son, who was named Robin. So he's both a replacement son and like a protege. She was especially keen on him because he was supposed to have been the orphan son of a tubercular Parisian ballerina. 
she had a previous Russian, quote-unquote, protege, and she had kicked that poor man to the curb when she found out he was actually a poor person from London's East End. It's mentioned that she was a smart enough woman that she knew how odd a relationship between an older woman and a younger man would look and how about how younger men take advantage of older women and that she was aware of all of that. So Right, which is why she made it appear as though these two men were her son. Um, And certainly, at least with Robin, even more creepily, giving him the name of her dead son. You could build a thriller on that alone. For sure. Um, There is technically another clue built into this. Christy does seed in the ability to get here because at that party, Maureen Summerhays talks about the fact that she's adopted. And she says to Robin, well, I don't much like being adopted. Do you? It's one of those classic Christie clues that requires really close reading. I'm very proud of myself because, again, I didn't remember this book. But when I read that passage, I was like, oh, so Robin Upward is adopted and that's weird and it was never referenced again. So that means Robin's the murderer. Right. It's two words. It's the do you question mark. You know, and it's that classic Christie clue like in Five Little Pigs, everything tastes foul today. Right. That's a much better version of the clue. Because here's my question. And I honestly looked back into the book and I couldn't figure it out. So similar to your continuity question, Catherine, I have something that was bothering me too. It's a legitimate question, so if anyone can answer this, please do. How does Maureen Summerhays know that I adopted? thought exactly the same thing. I There's no explanation because also they have just moved back to the village, so... Right! They talk about the fact that his, his theater friends knew about the whole weird situation because they're in the know and they knew Robin, but Maureen Summerhays is not a theater person and she was just in India. It's a critical problem. And again, if anyone can shed light, because sometimes we misread this stuff and we're just wrong, and I'm happy to be wrong because I'll always give Christy the benefit of the doubt, but please let me know. And I will say that I think our confusion is borne out by the fact that that clue is excised from the Suchet adaptation. Okay, so we're adding this after having initially posted the episode because we did get a response from one listener who noted that in one of the other passages in which Poirot was yammering on to an increasingly frustrated Superintendent Spence, he mentions this notion of a secret of Polichinelle, which incidentally is a reference to the Harlequinade, but don't worry, we will not get into the Harlequinade at this moment. What a secret of Paula Chanel is, as Poirot explains in this passage, is a secret that everyone knows, i.e. an open secret. And because everyone knows it, the secret would never be disclosed to a newcomer or outsider like Poirot. And in the moment, Poirot is entirely cryptic as to how this applies to the case, hence Spence's frustration. But an astute reader, not us, we're afraid, would realize by the end of the story that this is how Maureen Summerhays must know that Robin Upward is adopted, i.e. Robin's gossipy theater friends knew it and perhaps it got around that way. But whatever the case, everyone in Kilchester knows the secret, I'm using air quotes here, that Robin Upward is actually the adopted son of Mrs. Upward, not her biological son. Hence Maureen's casual query. For my money, this is still a bit of a stretch. How could such a crucial secret truly be an open secret? Also, we need Mrs. McGinty not to have known this secret, since that's why she thought Mrs. Upward was the woman in the photograph that was in Robin's possession. So how open could the secret really have been? But that's nitpicking. And to be fair, Christy does answer our question here as to how Maureen Summerhays could know that Robin is adopted, and we always want to give her her due. So that is what we are doing after the fact. But in any case, Mrs. McGinty, being completely clueless about the fact that Robin was actually adopted by Mrs. Upward, she found the picture that Robin kept in his drawer of his young mother. 
Eva Kane. This was the same photograph that she later recognized in the paper and confronted him about. The photograph is so old that she just assumed it was a photo of Mrs. Upward. Right. On the back of the photograph, he had written my mother. And that's how she also knew that it, you know, it had to be Mrs. Upward because again, she didn't know about the adoption situation. He, of course, couldn't have snooty Mrs. Upward, who cares so much about heredity, find out that he was, in fact, the son of a would-be murderess. And so he killed Mrs. McGinty with that sugar cutter or sugar hammer, which was easily accessible at Longmeadows since the summer hazes never locked their doors or kept track of any of their possessions and staged it to look like James Bentley had done it. Simple as that. And then when Poirot shows the photographs to the group, Robin knew that Mrs. Upward recognized the photograph of his quote-unquote ballerina mother. So she deliberately pointed to Lily Gamble instead of to the photograph of Eva Kane. And then he realized that he would have to kill her too because he knew that he would inherit her money and he had to do it before she either confronted him or she went to the police because if she figured out that he'd killed Mrs. McGinty, probably she was going to go to the police. At the very least disinherited him. You know, she threw the faux Russian to the curb. We hear about it from the theater people. He kills... Mrs. Upward, his faux mother, in the seconds when he's run back into the house to get something while Mrs. Oliver was waiting in the car to go to the theater. Having read that line of, I don't like being adopted to you, which happened before this scene, right. and knowing that Robin Upward was the murderer, then when it was noted that he went back for a short period of time into the house, I was like, oh, okay, right, and he's totally killing her right now. We've seen that sort of timing clue before, where it seems as if there isn't enough time to do it, or we're just meant to forget that he actually was there alone with her for technically the amount of time that would have been required to kill her. Like it happened in um, the house of a start that Miss Marple's mm-hmm. short story was, I think one of the first and best examples well, that we have of that. It, timing obfuscation, I guess you could call it. Right. It also um, has one of my favorite digs towards Mrs. Oliver when Poirot goes, I guess your feminine intuition must have been taking the day off. Right, because she's as much about feminine intuition as she was when we first met her in Cards on the Table. Right. He throws a lot of shade at her for that. Yeah. It takes all of pulling her scarf backwards. Yeah. He also phoned the three women, inviting them over, because they each had received messages, right? Yeah, they didn't know. They never talked to Mrs. Upward. They only received messages. And that, of course, would make the three of them potentially look responsible for the murder, along with the perfume in the hallway and the lipstick on the cup, which were very easy clues to plant. And then the blonde woman who Edna saw going into the house was actually Maud Williams, whose original name was, wait for it, Maud Craig. So it was her mother, Mrs. Craig, who Eva Kane either murdered or convinced her lover, Mr. Craig, to murder. Maybe Eva Kane was actually innocent of all this and it was just a husband murdering a wife. Mm, doesn't really seem to be the case, but no. in any case, her life was ruined, Maud the daughter, and she was raised by relatives. And then she later became friends with this Michael character, Michael West, who's a young theater actor. And this was one of the people who is in that group who knew Robin Upward. And he mentioned to her, he knew this playwright who went by Robin Upward, but his real name was Evelyn Hope, and he came from Australia. And since Maud knew, was the daughter of the Craigs, that Evelyn Hope was Eva Kane's real name and that she'd gone to Australia, she assumed that Robin was Eva Kane's son. And then when she saw that Robin lived with his mother, she assumed Mrs. Upward was Eva Kane. It's a little problematically confusing that this Michael West person wouldn't have also clued her into the whole adoption scenario with Mrs. Upward and Robin, but 
but whatevs. And she went to Laburnum's to murder her, but at that point, she'd already been murdered, so she left. And so, um, to tie up some loose ends here, (laughs) (laughs) Eve Carpenter had been acting shady because she was not a war widow. She was a taxi dancer. Shocking. I know. And had a lot of gentlemen friends during the war. And she doesn't want her future MP husband to find out. A bit of a Barbara Allen for murder in the muse situation there, minus the blackmail and resultant suicide. So that's her reason for acting weird. Sheila Rendell has been getting poison pen letters because Dr. Rendell was rumored to have murdered his first wife, which is not great. Deirdre and the Weatherby family act like they do because it turns out that Deirdre is rich from her late aunt and her mother and stepfather are poor and they hate her as a result. And so they have essentially kept her away from society in an attempt to keep complete control over her money. Papa Poirot has a little bit of a remedy for this, though, because it turns out that the soon-to-be-free James Bentley apparently had a weird crush on weird Deirdre, and uh, she seemed to have a weird crush on weird James back. Right, and we don't even end with them together, but we end with Poirot calling himself out as Papa Poirot, being like, oh, now I have nothing to do again, so those two, they're going to end up together, if I have anything to and, do and with Spence, it. And, and Spence is a little bit like, uh, are you sure? And he's like, I am sure. Spence is a little bit like, this is getting weird. I'm going to (laughs) go. Right. (laughs) The end. Don't worry. Don't touch that dial. We still have lots of chatter about adaptations and rankings to come. We just want you to pause for a moment, not for a traditional advertisement, because we don't do those on this podcast, nor do we ask for any sort of monetary contribution on these regular podcast episodes. There is always our Patreon, of course, if you're itching to contribute that way. But we did want to ask a favor of you. That is to give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to the podcast right now, be it Apple podcasts or stitcher or anywhere else it truly helps us out because the way that the podcast is promoted and presented on these various platforms is directly linked to how many ratings and reviews we have your one rating and review truly helps us reach more people in the crowded field of podcasts and it would just be a way of showing your appreciation for the episodes that you've listened to thus far so please go right ahead and pause right here to leave that rating and review. And we thank you so much for doing that. Before we get on to our rankings, as we always do, we should mention the adaptations for this novel, and we have two of them. The first is entitled Murder Most Foul, And this would, of course, be one of the perhaps notorious, perhaps celebrated, depending on who you are, MGM Margaret Rutherford, more comedic Miss Marple films from the 60s. I believe this is the third of those. And they get more deranged as they go on and further away from the books. That is borne out here by the fact that this is three of four, because the fourth isn't even based on a Christie text. 
I, w- I want to start with the title because it's really funny. Apparently, Christy wrote at one point, can you imagine a triter title than Murder Most Foul? And in a short story that we covered already on the podcast, Mr. Eastwood's Adventure, mm-hmm. Mr. Eastwood is a writer and he's sort of musing about, you know, changes his editor is going to make. And he says that, you know, his editor is probably going to change the title of the story. He just submitted to, quote, something rotten like Murder Most Foul. <laughs> you know, Christy had issues with these Margaret Rutherford adaptations, even though it seems that she liked Margaret Rutherford herself. And that's kind of how I feel about these adaptations too. Like I can't help being charmed by Margaret Rutherford, the actress, even though I'm like, I wish you just weren't doing a quote unquote Miss Marple movie because this isn't a Miss Marple anything. And of course here, this is obviously a Poirot novel that was turned into a Miss Marple novel and it just seems pointless. I just don't know that they have any sort of relationship to the actual books. We don't often use this secondary reference, but there's this wonderful slim little volume called Stranger Than Fiction, Agatha Christie's True Crime Inspirations. It goes off on a number of tangents, and this is one of them, but were you ever aware of Margaret Rutherford's personal history? No. Her father, 10 years before she was born, suffered a complete psychotic breakdown and battered his father's head to a pulp with a chamber pot before slashing his own throat with a knife and trying to kill himself. He then spent seven years in Broadmoor. He was then discharged and put into the care of his devoted wife, Florence. And then they made a new start in India soon after their only child, Margaret, was born. When Margaret was three, her depressive mother hanged herself from a tree in the garden of their home in Madras. And then upon returning to England, uh, the grief-stricken husband was readmitted permanently to Broadmoor. She was then raised in London by a kindly aunt, and, you know, they tried to shield the truth from her as long as possible. She learned all about her parents when she was 12. She herself had bouts of depressive illness, which were brought on apparently by an irrational fear that her father might escape and harm her. Yeah, well, it seems not necessarily irrational to me. Right, totally. It's fascinating to me, actually, that Margaret Rutherford then became the comedic actress that she did. Like, this is such an odd comparison to make, but the most recent version of of Little Women, which came out, which I adore, adapted and directed by Greta Gerwig, opens with a quote from Louisa May Alcott where she says, I'm paraphrasing, but she had a, a pretty hard life, which is why she writes jolly things. But I just thought that that was fascinating that Margaret Rutherford had that history. I just, I never would have thought that. I don't want to give the actress short shrift in our dismissal of these adaptations. I just, I don't think they're doing the source material any sort of a service. And I actually think that there was a place for Margaret Rutherford to just, as Christie's wrote through the voice of Ariadne Oliver, just be an entirely different character and be a brilliant comedic actress, just not one that is called Miss Marple. Doing Poirot doing Poirot. The only other thing that I think is worth mentioning about that adaptation is that it actually features an extremely young Francesca Annis, who we know as early 80s tuppence. She was also in some of those Real other delight. early 80s Christie adaptations. Yeah, here she plays a character named Sheila Upward. And if that Franken name <laughs> stitched together from the source material gives you any indication, yeah, that's the kind of adaptational stuff that's going on here. The adaptation that, of course, is more on point is the David Suchet adaptation, which aired in season slash series 11 in 2008. It's pretty faithful and 
And I actually think that wherever there are departures or simplifications made, they're warranted. They excise the non-Eva Kane and Lily Gamble cases, which is more than fair. Yeah. And then they also excise Deidre Henderson and Mr. and Mrs. Weatherby. Mm-hmm. And that means that James Bentley actually ends up with Maude Williams at the end, which is a little bit of a quasi-love triangle thing, even in the novel of like, oh, is he going to end up with Maude rather than Deidre? That was fine. I mean, I think they just had to cut down the number of characters because there are only so many that you can treat well in a 90-minute adaptation. Yeah, and there so. are there are a lot of characters. If you've listened this far, you are aware there are a lot of characters and a lot of plot in this that could be trimmed down. Yes, exactly. We've talked a lot before about how morose these later Poirot adaptations get in the series. And that problem, if it's a problem for you, for some people it's not. For me, it tends to be a problem. It's very stark here because this is such a comedic novel. We technically get all of the hijinks with Maureen Summerhays in the guest house. She's bleeding over the beans. The room is a mess. Poirot doesn't like it. But it's not much fun. <laughs> like no. it's, it's a little bit of fun, but it's about 10% of the fun that it is in the novel, just because the tone of these it's is dark. so much darker. Yeah. You know, Zoe Wanamaker does help because she is a delight as Ariadne Oliver. Now he wants Sven having sex in a sauna. Sven's never had sex in his life. You don't know how I suffer. Also, there is one legitimately light moment in the film as played by Suchet, which is his elation after he is almost thrown onto the train tracks and killed. Superintendent Spence, if you please. Superintendent, I have some very good news for you. No, 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 no. It is that someone has attempted to kill me. And also, as I mentioned, they did do away with that clue of I don't like being adopted to you. And I actually think that that is a smart, a smart change. I don't think that we actually mentioned in our tying up of loose ends, the person who did push Poirot on the train platform was actually Dr. Rendell. Well, we, right? th- we, we assume Poirot just makes the guess because, again, you know, he's rumored to have murdered his first wife. So it's an assumption. Right. It's, and it's funny because then it's like, well, don't you kind of need to deal with that? Because this potential like former murderer just tried to murder you. But Spence is like, oh, well, he knows that we're watching him now, so he'll be kept in check. And Poirot's like, oh, okay, good. They just want to make sure that Sheila Rendell does not take out a life insurance policy where he's the beneficiary, which is like a little bit, it's a a little bit of a cavalier way to look at a wife murderer. It's, dare I say, an almost loose end in the novel, which he very hastily ties up. And I actually appreciated in the Suchet adaptation, they fixed that because it was Sheila Rendell who actually tried to kill Poirot because she was in such a nervous, agitated state. And then it's kind of the idea of like, oh, well, I'm going to take care of her. The loose end felt a little more neatly tied to me that way. Right. So... Either way, it's a little awkward. All right, let's move on to our rankings. Apparently, according to Janet Morgan, this was one of Christie's favorite books, which I find interesting. I mean, I will just quote John Curran, as I often do at the top of our rankings discussion. This is what he has to say. During the planning of Mrs. McGinty's dead, the four murders in the past around which the plot is built provided Christie with an almost infinite number of possibilities, and she worked her way methodically through most of them. More than almost any other novel, this scenario seemed to challenge her mental fertility as she considered every character living in Broadhinney, the scene of the novel, as a possible participant in the earlier murders. 
And I think you can feel that too. It feels like she just at some point had to make a decision and she did. And she did so in what for Christy is a standard way, speaking relatively. It's Christy, so it's brilliant. You know, again, with the issue of the continuity error that you brought up in terms of the women's backstory, the I don't like being adopted to you potential error in there. And then the fact that all of the clues that point the finger at Robin Upward are clever enough, but not superlatively amazing. This is a book where the puzzle mystery is good. It totally works. It's just for me that it's not one of her most impressive. So I would either come out on a six or a seven for this one. I could come out even on mechanics and credibility. I don't know what you're thinking about credibility, Kemper, but I think that I kind of feel evenly about them. I have the same problems for both categories, and they're actually related. So if we actually came out somewhere in the six range on both of them, I think that would be right. What's your issue with credibility? I think it's glossed over a little bit the entire relationship between Robin and his quote-unquote mother, Mrs. Upward. And given Mm -hmm. that it's such a critical factor in the book, it's a little bit like, oh, and then here's like one line trying to explain that scenario. That's troubling to me. I know I couldn't agree more. I think you could make a comparison to Evil Under the Sun, actually, where... You know, we get that wonderful resolution where we realize the whole way that we've been thinking about the character of Arlena, right, is is wrong. Like, she's not the femme fatale. She's the pathetic victim. That's earned and warranted in the book. So that when we get to it, we're like, oh, my God, yes, of course. How could I not see that? Brilliant. Here, when Poirot says, well, you know, there was always something strange going on with the relationship between Mrs. Upward and her son. I'm like, ew, was there? Because... A, gross, and B, I I don't really know if that was quite in the text, because that's a major revelation, and it didn't quite feel earned. I had to read the passage where Mrs. Oliver is in the theater. I had to read that passage three times to make sure that I was reading what I thought I was reading. When she's getting the information about how she cast aside her former protege. The faux Russian. That whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very clunkily placed in there. And also, I will mention one other thing. Guess who um, Robin's sister is? It's Maud. And it's never mentioned at any point. Half-sister. His half-sister. Right. Right. Because his father, of course, is Mr. Craig. Mm Mm-hmm. Also really odd to just not mention it. And actually, John Curran, once again, comes to the rescue. There's a quote that he mentions from Christie's Notebooks when she's nearing the end of this specific novel. And this is what she wrote. NB, all V unlikely. (laughs) When she's trying to figure out who did it, she's like, "Mm, it doesn't really seem like any of these people did it. And you can feel that. The reason why I think I come out with credibility a little bit lower than plot mechanics is that I think it ultimately goes to credibility because you feel it when you're trying to actually figure out what Robin Upward's journey was. I understand in the moment why and how he killed Mrs. McGinty and then no, his adoptive no, no, no. mother. Right, right. So, but, so, so I, what I would say is everything that happens in the present day of the book actually makes right. sense. The motive is money money, more money, and then a bunch of busybodies. So it's totally credible, right? Totally credible. It's everything leading up to the present day of the book that just has like a giant, huh? Question mark? 
on it. Exactly. I mean, that's why if you're okay with it, I I would love to do a, a seven on plot mechanics and a five on plot credibility. But I agree with you that like a twelve overall out of twenty, which is not bad, feels like the right level. I guess I would have gone six and six, but I can be convinced to seven and five. All right, so seven for plot mechanics, five for plot credibility. And now we get to what I think is going to be the happiest category, and we've already talked so much about it, and that's series-long characters. There's no question that this is a wonderful Poirot novel. Just pure joy. For such a dark novel, too, and it's very unusual for Poirot to be the one going to a little village and doing all of the active investigating. Say what you will, I suppose, about MGM turning a Poirot into a Marple. It does feel a little bit more natural for Miss Marple to be doing some busybody investigating in this village setting. But that's part of the fun of this book, right? Because then Poirot is stuck in this horrible guest house. It also has the great quality where he's not about to be some nobody busybody in a little village. He's just going to tell everybody that he's Hercule Poirot and he's there to investigate a murder. And don't you know who he is? Right, and then no one does. <laughs> and which is also showing the age a bit, too. I mean, as we get further along in the Poirot chronology, the world really has forgotten him. Compare this Poirot to the ABC Murders Poirot, who really was kind of a superstar right. in the world, in the fictional England that Christie was creating. This might be the best just pure Poirot characterization of almost any of the Poirots that we've actually read. At the very least, it feels like a return to some of those really strong Poirots from the 30s. I wanted to mention, because it's really such a consistent aspect of Poirot's character in the text, which has never really made it to any adaptation, but his love of poetry comes through again, because Evil and Hope, by the way, is the name of a character and the name of a poem, just as Enoch Arden was in Taken at the Flood. It's a Robert Browning poem, and Poirot quotes, beautiful Evil and Hope is dead. He's quoting Invictus at one point also. I just love that he he has this taste for fine literature which comes through and then even beyond that i mean we mentioned we of course have superintendent spence who is so much of a fuller character in this novel than he was in taken at the flood i also really appreciated that there's even some comedy in this third person narration when spence starts getting frustrated with poro at the end it was after that remark that there was very nearly a third murder the murder of Hercule Poirot by Superintendent Spence in Kilchester Police Headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't mention this earlier because ultimately it doesn't matter, but they're debating about who would keep a photograph. And basically Poirot's point is nobody involved with Lily Gamble would keep that photograph because it's so hideous. Right. But he says something about, you know, plenty of people keep photographs of their adult daughters as little girls with taffeta spread out underneath them on rugs and Spence kind of like smiles slightly and like looks away and it's like oh I might know some people like that mm-hmm. there are yeah. like lots of little moments like that which are like very just like lovely grace notes I think yeah and then of course we also have Ariadne Oliver and we've already talked a lot about what makes her so great in general and then in this book specifically and the only other quote I wanted to pull out was one in which Christy gets to opine about the introversion of authors and you know that she's just writing this about herself and it's when Ariadne is dragged to that theater gathering with Robin Upward and she writes what a mistake for an author to emerge from her secret fastness authors were shy and sociable creatures atoning for their lack of social aptitude by inventing their own companions in conversations oh Agatha I know and then also right after that we have a really good exchange between Mrs. Oliver and Robin where he's like but don't you just love people and Mrs. Oliver is like no I will never understand people they're the worst (laughs) 
she references some of her books. And that was also one of my favorite parts of Cards on the Table, because we get an, another reference to the affair of the second goldfish, which I still think is one of the best fake book titles ever. And then two others, which are just sound so dreadful. The cat it was who died. And then death of a debutante, the latter of which she calls tripe, which she also used when talking about her books and cards on the table. And then this is also the book where Christy makes fun of herself and her gaffe for putting a blowpipe into death in the clouds right. and thinking that it was only a foot long when really it's six feet long. And Ariadne Oliver is talking about how readers are like constantly writing in about stuff like that, correcting her. Yeah. So I think we were in agreement as to a nine. Yeah. All right. Then we get to book specific characters, which interestingly for a book that has such outstanding uh, series long characters is not so great. Oh, they're bad. Kemper. Yeah, they're not great. In a weird way, James Bentley, because he's so unusual in his lack of charisma, is at least, I can't say one of the more well-drawn because he's barely drawn, but intriguing characters. I got a little bit of an Alexander Bonaparte Cust vibe from him. Although kind of... ABC murders. Kind of worse, because at least Cust, you feel bad for him. You don't feel bad for Bentley. No, it's true. Well, and he also refers to his mother as mother. So oh, I was it's getting very little, like, psycho. Norman Bates yeah, vibes. total Norman yeah, Bates yeah, vibes. very psycho. Mother wouldn't like that. Mother would have thought that Maud wore too much makeup. Mother didn't like girls like that. The way she portrayed Bentley just made me think about something that we haven't really mentioned on this podcast yet. For a person who wrote as many murder mysteries as she did, it is actually fairly rare for Christy to start one of these puzzle mysteries from the point of the wrong person being convicted of a murder. Of course, two of her most famous novels do start there, Five Little Pigs and Ordeal by Innocence, which we haven't gotten to yet. But it's interesting because she doesn't really seem to want to play the game of, oh, maybe this person was wrongly accused and convicted and justice has been thwarted. She's happy dealing in extrajudicial kind of mayhem and hoo-ha. I'm extrapolating here, but my guess would be that she believed in the criminal justice system and perhaps had more of Miss Marple's proclivities and we know that Miss Marple has a zero problem with capital punishment. <laughs> oh, no. Um, if they still had public hangings, I believe that, you know, Miss Marple probably would be out there. And it's just funny because Bentley is such a black hole of a character oh. that it's like he could have been like the Jean Valjean of this novel, but she just doesn't want to go there, you know? Oh, and it, well, it, it's just interesting. I mean, Poirot literally yells at him in prison. He says basically, like, if you can't be bothered to remember anything, like, why should anybody be bothered to fight for you? In one of the last paragraphs of the book, when Spence and Poirot are dining at Vegramer, they're joking that, oh, well, he's just feeling super disappointed right now that he's not going to be hanged. It's it's really interesting. It's telling that that's how she treats that character when it comes to the other book-specific characters. I found myself comparing this book actually to the Sidiford mystery, which was another closed circle community of, in that case, it was cottages that were very close together. We have a bit more of an, not upper class, but at least upper middle class kind of Amelia going on here. But they're still tight-knit. They're still very close together. I kept on getting the sense that Christy thought they were a lot more interesting or the story thought they were a lot more interesting than they were on the page. The only character who is interesting is Maureen Summerhays. And I would argue she's just mainly funny. Like, right. she's amusing. Yeah. I don't even know if I would say she's interesting. I think she's amusing. She's diverting. Right. The Carpenters, no. The Weatherby slash Deirdre Henderson, uh-uh. No. Even the Upwards, bleh. 
<laughs> you know, like not in a good way. Well, well, well we're going to talk about Robin again in a minute. So yes, we will. And the Rendells too, just kind of real misses. Um, mm-hmm. Not the worst that we've ever seen. I think we came out the same on this one as well at, at about a five. Yeah. All right. So five on that. And then we get to setting in tone, you know, I think in the same way that the characters are misses for the most part in this book, the setting is not particularly evoked. I don't, no. I couldn't really tell you what Broadhinny looks like or even what a lot of these houses, which we're constantly going in and out of, their names are being dropped all the time and all over the place. I didn't really get... No sense uh, at all. Yeah. Long Meadows is evoked the most. And even that, yes. really only the drawing room, you kind of get any sense of. I could certainly picture the bulging can. <laughs> um, I mean, you didn't think that we would not mention the bulging can, tin yeah. listeners, did you? Come on. He had hoped devoutly that the contents of the bulged tin and the blood-stained beans had been duly eaten for lunch and had not been saved for a supper treat for him. But possibly there were other doubtful tins. Life at Longmeadow certainly had its dangers. <laughs> or the berries that have a little mold on the top, but, you know, penicillin's good for you, she hears. And that kind of goes to tone. Like I said, there's a lightness mixed with darkness here well, that makes this book very readable and and intriguing well, it's, it's, overall. It's, it's snarky in the third person parts too, which is something we don't always get. You mentioned the line with Spence, the, the commentary that there was almost a murder and the murder was almost a Poirot. And you get actually a lot of those sort of asides. You get a lot of what Poirot's thinking and a lot of it is not very nice. All of that is like very delightful. It makes for an incredibly charming read as far as reading and enjoying the book. It's very spry. Oh, I almost read it in one sitting. And I actually don't usually read these books in one sitting. We've given out a lot of eights in the recent past for setting and tone for a lot of these books. And we've talked about how she clearly knows what she's doing at this point. She's been doing it for over 30 years now that we're in the 50s. This one just feels a tick lower than an eight because the setting in particular. Um, yeah, that's what it's getting just, knocked for is the setting. Yeah, it's just flat. But I think, yes, it's that the third person voice is surprisingly spry and mm-hmm. not flat. And sometimes her third person narration can feel a little subdued. And we have the opposite here. And I really appreciate that. So I think we were in agreement on a seven for this. Yeah. And then we come to Stuck in Its Time. Would you like to do the honors, Catherine? I think that it deserves a deduction. I'm only going to go with the one, but there's... There's this ickiness surrounding Robin. I guess you could partially argue that it's theatrical, quote unquote. But what I think it is, is that it's a kind of coded almost homophobia, especially when you go back to what we were talking about, the weird relationship between Robin and Mrs. Upward. All of his dialogue, all of this sort of like over the top madres, darling. Oh my God, darling. Don't you just love that? There's a performative element that I don't think can be attributed entirely to the theater. I suppose there's an argument to be made that we're reading it in 2020 and maybe that is informing this take, but I don't think so. I think that it's deliberate and it certainly rubbed me the wrong way. Interestingly enough, and again, we can thank John Curran for this information, cannot laud his two books, Agatha Christie's Notebooks, enough because there's just so much information in there that does not exist anywhere else. That's why we reference him approximately a billion times each episode. But he actually includes this fascinating tidbit, which is that we obviously had 
what is essentially a same-sex couple in A Murder is Announced, right? With the Mrs. Mm-hmm. Hinchcliffe and Murgatroyd. Right. And in her planning for this book, it seems as though she were planning that one of the cottages or houses in this village was going to be inhabited by two men who live together. And who knows exactly what that means, but we saw her do something very deliberate and in many ways progressive, right? With Miss Hinchcliffe and Miss Murgatroyd, yeah. murder is announced, and I think it's interesting that potentially there's some evidence here that her mind was in that zone uh, when she was planning out this book as to perhaps a same-sex male couple. We're not making this up that traditional attitudes toward same-sex relationships are generally much more favorable when it comes to female same-sex relationships as opposed to male, there's an element of panic and consternation and potential disgust over two men that just, it's not as as viscerally felt generally when it comes to two women. And we've seen depictions like this before, obviously. We saw Mr. Ellsworthy in Murder is Easy. We even saw, you could argue, Mr. Shaitana in Cards on the Table, previous Ariadne Oliver Who is mentioned in this book. He is. I agree with you. And I, I think, though, it's kind of an either or end situation because I think that there's something unsavory about Robin Upward and either it's because he has these homosexual tendencies in him which are never spelled out but are there or also it's due to his heredity because he is well the he tries son. To, he tries to make that claim when he's doing the full confession in the denouement mm-hmm. but it seems again that even that is like performative yes and i think that actually the best evidence for the portrayal that you're arguing for which is you know this slightly nasty kind of sense that Robin Upward isn't a real man, not quote unquote one of us, is the way that he's made to confess is to be put in sort of bodily danger. And he immediately crumbles. With a sudden movement, Poirot seized the sugar hammer from the shelf and whirled it round and down as though to bring it crashing down on Robin's head. So menacing was the gesture that several of the circle cried out. Robin Upward screamed a high, terrified scream. And then he's like, don't, don't. It was an accident. I swear it was an accident. It's pretty clear what she's doing here. I mean, he's he's portrayed as sort of a sissy, a coward, less than a real man. There's also, when we meet him early on, there is a description of him as he would be very attractive if he weren't. And then there's a use of a French word and essentially means pudgy. Oh, yeah. En bon point. Uh-huh. Correct. But it's usually that word is usually a word that is used in reference to ladies' bosoms. Mm, yeah. It's a curious word to use to describe a man. Correct. Isn't it? Yep. I'm there with you. And I agree that it's worth one point. That brings us to our tallying up here. We've got 7 plus 5 plus 9 plus 5 plus 7 minus 1 for a total of 32 points. Putting Mrs. McGinty's Dead in a major tie, because we have a lot of titles that are falling at 32 points, it really doesn't bother me because then it just kind of allows us to be a little bit more nuanced. Here's what we have at 32 points, uh, and I'm going in rank order here. Evil Under the Sun, Three-Act Tragedy, Appointment with Death, Lord Edgeware Dies, and Taken at the Flood. I feel pretty strongly that Mrs. McGinty's Dead is not better than any of those titles, except 
for Taken at the Flood. I could even be argued that Taken at the Flood is better, but I think I would probably put Mrs. McGinty's Dead above Taken at the Flood. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Well, then that puts it in 19th place out of 42 novels, so not bad. No. It's certainly in the top half. And I think that's fair. I mean, again, this is a good Christie. Yeah. I think that there are books that are ranked above this that are not as fun to read as this is. Totally agree. All right. Well, that is Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Join us next time for Dead Man's Mirror. Mm. This is another one of those Poirot novellas that appears within the Murder in the Muse collection. Or if you're going by the U.S. title, Dead, Dead Man's Mirror. Yeah, I know. The titular story. <laughs> yeah. And we should also note that this one, as our previous novella within that collection did, has an original short story version, which is the second gong. So we will be touching on the short story as well. And uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. We are reachable via email at allaboutthedame@gmail.com. We're on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. Our Instagram handle is all about Agatha. And uh, we are also, of course, on Patreon. Our Patreon site is www.patreon.com/allaboutagatha. Our last episode was covering some somewhat obscure titles from the Hound of Death collection. So for the completists among you, if you haven't yet checked out our Patreon site, please go ahead and do so. And also leave us a rating and review if you should so desire. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.